This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Initial findings from a NASA study of two famous astronaut twins have yielded some surprising results about aging in space. It's the subject of beta test, our continuing coverage of cutting-edge research in Colorado. The findings come from researchers at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and their guinea pigs are Scott and Mark Kelly, who are identical twins. Scott returned in March from a year at the International Space Station, while Mark, who's retired, stayed home. Scientists used them to compare the physical effects of living in space and on Earth. The Kellys were interviewed on CBS News in 2015 before Scott left for space. Having Mark as the control subject is very fortunate, not only because we're twins, but he's also a former astronaut. NASA has data on him going back to 1995. CSU professor Susan Bailey is a radiation biologist. We first spoke to her about the research while Scott Kelly was still in space. Susan, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Your study is one of several taking place across the country, examining how the brothers fared in very different environments. Scott has spent more time in space than any other U.S. astronaut. What's the focus of your research? So our part of the twin study, which, as you say, involved 10 different investigations across um, the country, ours is centered here at at CSU and involved looking at um, and monitoring the telomere length and telomerase activity in both of the twins. So telomeres just being the ends of our chromosomes that that degrade or shorten as we get older. It's just a very natural process. And telomerase is the enzyme that actually adds telomere sequence back onto the ends of our chromosomes. So we were very interested to see, you know, what the effects of space flight might be on changing that. It's the first time that NASA has really engaged in any kind of a, an aging study associated with space flight. And what did you expect would happen over the course of the study? What, what was the hypothesis? So, yes, going into the study, we um, hypothesized that, in fact, the all of the various stressors involved with spaceflight, the, the physical stresses, the nutritional um, you know, limitations that they have, the psychological stresses of being isolated for such a long period of time, uh, that combined with... Um, the environmental exposures, like the radiation exposure that they experience on the International Space Station, that all of these things would be combined to really accelerate the rate of telomere loss so that, in fact, you know, Scott's telomeres would end up being shorter than Mark, who was living, you know, a a fairly um, normal Earth life during that time. So it'd be more stressful for him, so these telomeres would would, would shorten and and grow older, essentially. Right. And there's a lot of evidence supporting that, you know, there is, in fact, a lot of different lifestyle factors and, and, um, you know, just health choices that we make that influence telomere length. So we had quite a bit of, you know, support to to think that. But what did your preliminary findings (laughs) actually show? Yes. Well, once again, we were wrong um, and very surprising to us that, um, you know, in fact, what we saw in in Scott were the few samples that we were able to obtain while he was on the station, that in fact, we saw a lengthening of telomeres. 
So, and again, I, you know, always a word of caution. These are very preliminary results and it's just one individual and like I say, two different sampling times. But it was very obvious that um, for those samples we got in flight that were taken on the station, that there was an increase in the average length of telomeres for Scott, as well as um, in another assay that we do, we can actually look at individual telomeres and we could see um, a shift in the population to where we could see an increase in cells that had longer telomeres. So, you know, by a variety of different ways, we've we've looked at it and really tried to to validate that result. But um, it's it, it's becoming pretty clear that that's exactly what was happening. Do you know why? No, no, we don't. I mean, at this point, that certainly is the our next challenge and what the, our next efforts will be focused on is making correlations to the other studies, to the other um, endpoints that were evaluated in Mark and Scott to see if we can't find some clue um, that would help us understand or help us to explain why telomeres might get longer. And there are some possibilities. I mean, one of the the top candidates would be telomerase, the the activity that I mentioned earlier that can can actually lengthen telomeres. So if we can find evidence, for example, um, in the gene expression studies that there was an increase in telomerase or from uh, the epigenome that the methylation patterns might indicate to us that the regulation of telomerase was somehow um, off or misregulated. That would give us an idea that in fact telomerase might be responsible for actually lengthening telomeres. Could it could it be that there's a sort of a fountain of youth in space that humans <laughs> might actually age more slowly there? Oh, gosh. So I don't know that I'm really ready to go interstellar on you and, and say that telomeres underlie you know, the theory of re- relativity. But I mean, it's a little bit tempting to think about, you know, that in fact, you know, that's the whole idea behind the theory of relativity, that that relative to us on Earth, um, a space traveler, as they go, for example, deeper in space and spend longer periods of time as they venture to Mars, wouldn't age as quickly as as we do here on Earth. So, I mean, you could certainly make the jump and say that perhaps telomeres underlie all that, but we certainly have a lot more work to do um, to to validate that finding and and to really understand why that was happening. Now, now briefly, what happened to Scott's telomeres, did they retain their length once they got back to Earth or once he got back to Earth? Yes. Yeah, so that's the that's the next catch. And that is, I guess, if it's a fountain of youth, you have to stay up there because as soon as Scott returned to Earth, um, his telomeres returned very rapidly to where they were before he went up. So it was a very transient effect that we saw, a change that occurred, you know, in in space during his time on station and returned very quickly, as I said, once he got back. So pre-flight and post-flight were very similar, very much like what we would expect. And they were also very similar to Mark. So Mark and Scott's telomere lengths were very similar. Uh, Again, something that we would very much expect because it, it is a hereditary or a genetic trait. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much. I hope to have the rest of the story sometime soon. (laughs) And we'll have you back on. Thanks. Okay. Susan Bailey is a professor of environmental and radiological health sciences at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. We spoke about research at CSU about the effects of living in space. The research compared identical twin astronauts Scott and Mark Kelly. Scott spent a year at the International Space Station, while Mark stayed here on Earth. 
The A-Line train that takes passengers between Denver's Union Station and the airport has had trouble since it opened last spring. CPR News has obtained emails from RTD and the Federal Railroad Administration that show the two agencies disagreed on basic facts and how to communicate those problems to the public. CPR's Nathaniel Miner talked with Mike Lamp about what that means. Now, before we get to the emails, uh, remind us about the problems that the train line has had. Of course, the highest profile issues were mechanical breakdowns. You might remember that photo of a train stuck on a bridge from last summer. Yes. Those are largely fixed now. But the other big issue is that crossing gates don't work properly. They're not coming down and going up when they need to. And that affects both the airport train and the B line from Union Station to Westminster. So RTD and its contractor, Denver Transit Partners, have stationed flaggers at each crossing since each line opened last year. Also, uh, trains have been blowing their horns at intersections, which has residents in North Denver pretty ticked off. Understandably. Uh, These emails that we mentioned, where did you get those? I got them through an open records request, which allows anyone to get documents from public agencies, including emails. And they're from October of last year. And what do they say? They show the head of RTD's communications team, Nate Curry, trying to get on the same page with his counterpart at the Federal Railroad Administration, or FRA. Okay, and and that uh, is kind of to be expected. What uh, did you find interesting about that? The FRA is an independent agency. It regulates RTD. They've allowed the trains to keep running while RTD works to fix the crossing arms. And the FRA disagreed with RTD's talking points and called one of them flat-out inaccurate. And what were those talking points? There are things that we've been hearing from RTD through this whole process as they've explained to media why issues have persisted. One big one, RTD says its use of positive train control would influence other passenger rail systems across the country. Positive train control is the technical system that helps avoid accidents and controls crossing arms. And RTD is uh, continuing to use these same talking points. RTD says they've kept some and adjusted others. But just a few weeks ago, RTD's contractor told me this. We are the pioneers of this brand new technology. You know, in in five years, we're going to be a model for the country and for the world. That's Nadia Garris with Denver Transit Partners. They've tried to stay closely aligned with RTD when it comes to public communication. And the FRA, this is the Federal Railroad Administration, they dispute the claim about RTD's influence? Exactly. In the email, the FRA official said RTD's projects make up a tiny fraction of the rail systems that use positive train control. So what is it that kind of piqued your curiosity to even check into this relationship between the RTD and the FRA? These two train lines are part of a bigger project that has cost more than $2 billion, and much of that has come from taxpayers. So with the possibility of the FRA shutting down trains, I wanted to find out more about the relationship between the two agencies. And with this kind of digging that you've done, what have we learned? Basically, the emails show that the federal government thought that RTD was trying to get a little too cozy with its regulator, and the feds thought that RTD was overstating just how groundbreaking its technology is. And what does RTD say now? I called up Nate Curry with RTD, and he says the emails show just one tiny sliver of the relationship between RTD and the FRA. And that's true. The emails were just between uh, spokespeople. Curry says the two agencies' relationship is still good, and he called the exchange a learning experience. Maybe talk up to a rookie mistake, but or just me being naive and I just wanted to reach out to our partners and say, hey, let's coordinate. So that's from uh, Nate Curry and the RTD. What about the FRA? The FRA official whose email I got left the agency as President Trump took office. So I asked their current communications team if they still disagreed with RTD's talking points. They didn't answer that question. But in an email yesterday, an FRA spokesman said the agency treats all railroads the same. 
And I will say that the FRA has continued to give RTD waivers to keep trains rolling. So if they do disagree with RTD's public statements about the train, it's not enough for the FRA to shut it down. And now what happens next? The FRA just gave RTD another 90-day waiver to get the crossing gate issue fixed. That expires in late April, more than a year after the A-line opened. And RTD still doesn't have an estimate of how long that work will take. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. That's CPR's Nathaniel Miner talking to Mike Lamp. You can read the email exchange at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Professional snowmobiler Colton Moore suffered a serious spinal cord injury last month at the 2017 X Games in Aspen. Reports say he's recovering well. In 2013, Colton's brother Caleb died after a similar botch stunt at the X Games. Earlier last year, host Ryan Warner spoke with Colton about his brother's death and to author Keith O'Brien. O'Brien helped Colton write the book Catching the Sky. It follows the two brothers' unlikely rise to snowmobiling stardom. Keith, can you tell us more about this sport. What is, exactly do you do in freestyle snowmobiling? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having us, Ryan. So freestyle snowmobiling is a sport in which uh, people launch their snowmobiles off ramps of varying sizes. And while they're airborne, do tricks that no human being should be doing on a snowmobile. And, and they do it with such grace that they almost make it look easy. And yet, of course, it isn't at all. And primarily, people see this uh, every year in the X Games held there in Aspen. Mm. What What did you first think of this sport when you when you saw it? I, I'm not a, a an X Games enthusiast or a snowmobile a snowmobiler myself. That, that's not what drew me to the story whatsoever. Uh, to me, this this story is about a family um, who, who did something that they had no business doing. As you pointed out at the outset there, Ryan, Colton and Caleb grew up in rural Texas. Uh, they consider their home to be the panhandle of Texas, Wheeler, Texas. It's uh, a place where, where the cattle outnumber the people by a large number and there's no hills and, and very rarely any snow. And yet they, they achieved these great heights and became the, some of the top, uh, freestyle snowmobilers in the world, you know that to me is an interesting story. Uh, even before, of course, they face the tragedy of what happened in 2013. Mm-hmm. So, Colton, we've talked uh, on this program to other extreme athletes. I think of the climber Alex Honnold, who sometimes scales giant granite walls without any ropes. And the inevitable question in these conversations is: Do you get scared? Honold told us no, because he's prepared so much for those climbs. Yet you write in the very beginning of this book that you are afraid all the time. What do you get scared of, Colton? I mean, there's always risk involved, but we practice, you know, a ton to try to reduce the risk as much as possible. But no matter what, accidents happen and everything. It's, uh, I think, what there is in a bunch of us action athletes is that we're able to control our fear and focus it and push toward our goals and basically overcome our fears to do what we do. Uh, your brother, Caleb, was a real showman. Um, could you describe the trick that he was doing that led to his his eventually fatal crash? 
Um, it's called a backflip KOD, which basically you jump off the ramp, you do a backflip on the snowmobile, and while the snowmobile is upside down, you let go with your legs and you hang down completely underneath the sled only by your hands. So it's kind of like you're doing a handstand upside down on the snowmobile. And then as soon as you're halfway, you're hanging completely off and then you want to pull yourself back around and then land back upright on the sled. And as he came around, he came up a little under-rotated and caught the front of the skis on the snow, which ended up tossing him over the front and the sled ended up tackling him. He had practiced this many times before. You expected him to land it. Um, Did the accident that killed your brother, which, by the way, was broadcast on television because there are recordings of it on YouTube, is it something you revisit? Do you watch that footage? Is it something you avoid altogether? Um, I've gone back and seen it a few times, but for the most part, I don't like to watch that. I'd rather watch all the uh, the good footage of him riding good and and landing stuff, and and it keeps me pushing forward. Sometimes I go back and and watch him, and it it makes me feel happy to watch him ride and and still learn from him. In in his happier moments, you continue to compete after your brother's death, and at the following year's X Games, so in 2014, you won a gold medal. Here's an interaction right after from ESPN. What is this moment like for you? This is the greatest moment ever to be able to come back here, ride for my brother, not just for him, but with him, because I know he was out here with me all night. I know he was out here all night. How do you know that your brother, Caleb, was with you, Colton? I just could feel him out there. You know, X Games is a you know, high-stress-level type thing. Every year I've been there, it's you work up your nerves, and you see the cameras and the people and lights and everything going on. And for once that year, like, it was the calmest moment I think I've ever had riding. It just felt like I was out there, like, as if we were at our house, just riding to ride to have fun. And I just felt like he was there helping me just stay relaxed and have fun with it. Well, speaking of of your house, when you were growing up in the panhandle, as you say, of Texas, uh, your first introduction really to the sport was not on snowmobiles, but on four-wheelers. Uh, certainly more appropriate to the environment there. <laughs> what appealed to you about that sport? You know, I was never a, a tall kid or a big kid that was good at normal sports like basketball or football, and so was able to hop on a fooler where I had a motor, and it didn't matter how big I was or how strong I was. I was able to keep up and compete with anyone else that was on it. Keith, it's interesting you dug into the history of snowmobiling in this book. Why why was it important to you to track this sport back to the origins of the machines the athletes ride on? Well, I thought it was just a very interesting arc. When snowmobiles were invented uh, in the early 1900s, they were a utilitarian vehicle. Over time, of course, people, just like with cars decided, hey, maybe we can race these things. And, you know, from racing turned into flipping or jumping. Um, But as recently as 15, 16 years ago, people thought it was impossible to to flip a snowmobile. And and, and, and as recently as the late 90s, people thought it was impossible until a man named Jim Rippey uh, ultimately tried it and did it and, and, and proved that it could be done. Keith, in the book, you describe Caleb as a showman. 
someone willing to do more extreme things than anyone else. And I'd like to have you explain the canyon jump in Utah that you write about so vividly. Sure. So this this jump took place long before the name Caleb Moore meant anything. Uh, He was still just riding four-wheelers and um, hadn't yet learned to, to flip one. Um, but he was jumping them, and uh, and and there was a, a, a growing field of DVDs um, that were uh, c- committed to this kind of footage, and, and were capturing this kind of footage. Mm-hmm. And Caleb was uh, doing some jumps out in in Caneville, Utah, for for a company that was shooting these videos. And there was a a, a canyon there. Uh, these were not jumps that anyone had built. Or, or brought in with with steel ramps. These were just you know rocks and and mountain formations, and this jump was uh, considered too wide by anyone else to try. And there was wind variables. There was no way to practice for this jump because you couldn't gauge the distance. And Caleb was the only one who was willing to try. And and there's video footage of of him getting ready to do this. And it, he's calm. He's he's raking the the the, the rocks uh, leading up to it, and and he jumps this thing. And you see these other guys who who take risks just like Colton does every every day. These are guys who are who are who are who are prone to this kind of thing, and they're frightened for him. They're they're actually shrieking as he as he jumps this thing, and and he sticks it. He lands it, and the place goes. You know, the, the crew there goes absolutely wild. And uh, Colt, the first thing Caleb says is, I, I got to do it again. I, I, I think I can hit it better this time. And his friends try to talk him out of it, but he, 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 he won't listen to them. And he, and he does it a few more times because he wants to get it right. Huh. And let me say, this is on a four-wheeler. This is prior to him transferring to snowmobiles. And, you know, Caleb also flipped his four-wheeler in front of a crowd at the Olympic Stadium in Montreal after landing it in practice only six times. I mean, he really didn't have a lot uh, to practice, um, a lot of practice before that. Um, And here's what you wrote. There are people who will never understand what motivated my brother to climb aboard his quad that night in Montreal. Uh, You go on to write to Colton, there are people even who would consider that he was about to do uh, something stupid, a death wish beneath the lights in Canada. But just as these critics don't understand us, we don't understand them. What do you mean, Colton? I mean, for me, you know, living life is doing what you love. And and for us, it was pushing the limits and seeing what we could do. And how I talked about controlling fear earlier, uh, my brother, I don't even know, I think he was fearless. <laughs> and for us, I think, you know, a lot of people ask, why do you do that? That's crazy. You could get hurt. Well, I'd rather be out enjoying my life, living it and pushing myself than, you know, maybe sitting behind a desk and not really enjoying what I do. Like, yeah, maybe it's safe, but to me, that's not fun. I wonder how much money has to do with this as well, uh, Colton, because in the book you make reference many times to your humble upbringings. It definitely was uh, nice to see that we can make money from riding, and we, we had never, you know, been one to have a bunch of money or, you know, a way of making it. So when we found out that we could ride and make money, that was definitely uh, lit up our eyes a lot. But to me, I think even if it wasn't for the money, we'd still be doing it. 
Besides the obvious danger of flipping a several hundred pound machine over your head, dozens of feet in the air, um, you knew the risks because of an incident that happened at your house in 2008, Colton. Uh, an up-and-coming rider went to practice at your home in Texas, where you and Caleb and your dad had built a giant foam pit to practice jumps and flips of four-wheelers in that case. And um, this visitor crashed, and even though a helicopter scooped him up to bring him to Dallas, he may have been dead in your yard. Did did seeing that happen change anything for you, or or maybe just as importantly for your brother Caleb? It was definitely tough. You know, me and my brother and my parents had talked about what could happen and the possibility of, you know, being paralyzed or even being killed was talked about, but I don't think it was really ever opened up and brought to our eyes until that incident. And after that, you know, my brother took that really hard, and so did I, and I think it kind of opened our eyes like, wow, okay, like this is real, this really could happen. It happened right in front of us, and uh, for me, you know, it it definitely made me a lot more cautious about the things that I do, and just made me practice a lot harder and, you know, take every precaution that I could to be safe about it. Colton, have you kept the snowmobile that your brother rode for the last time? Uh, yes, I have. I've kept a lot of things that he had, uh, his last snowmobile, some of the last quads, um, his last jersey. Uh, I like to hold on to that stuff and you know, it reminds me of the times I had with him. Growing up, he was you know, my inspiration, my idol, and my mentor. So I always look up to him as much as possible, even now thinking back to the things he did and the things that he would say now to me to help me keep going. Uh, Keith, after Caleb crashed, the X Games made some changes. They wanted to make this sport of freestyle snowmobiling safer. Uh, just briefly, what did they do? Is it making a difference? They, they required riders to wear chest protection. They required riders to uh, install springs on their skis on the front to, to bring them back just a couple of inches when they were in the air. Um, and, you know, they, they set up some barricades around the, 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 the competition area that didn't exist before. Um, but I think Colton himself would tell you that those changes probably uh, didn't change very much. Hmm. That is to say, Colton, it's just as dangerous, you think, today? Um, I would say it's pretty close to the same thing. Um, it's definitely a, it can be a dangerous sport, but that's why we all practice a lot and try to make it as safe as possible. But as in anything, accidents are possible. Professional snowmobiler Colton Moore and author Keith O'Brien speaking to Ryan Warner last May. Colton suffered a serious spinal cord injury last month at the X Games in Aspen. His brother Caleb died after an accident during the 2013 X Games. Reports say Colton is recovering nicely. That's our show today. It's also CPR's winter membership drive. Call in your support now, 1-800-496-1530. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News.